0: Welcome friends to the Waterworks Ministries podcast. I am Karen Weiss, your host, and we're so happy to have you listening. Waterworks is a ministry of prayer by means of empowerment, knowledge, and nurture. We do this through spiritual direction, coaching, teaching, and leading retreats and justice work. Check out our website at www.waterworksministries.org to learn more about what we do and how we can partner together to equip and encourage people to be healed and more whole in this world. Before we go any further, I need to give a disclaimer. Um, This podcast has adult topics and language in it, and so I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to not listen with children. Also, if you realize from listening that you are in the downward spiral, that our guest describes and you want to deal with your stuff, please go to a trusted pastor, spiritual director, therapist, or friend for support, guidance, and help. You are not alone and people care about you. All of that to say, this is our self care and evil podcast, which is part of season two on evil and spiritual warfare. This episode in particular is part one of two episodes with the Reverend Brent Salsgiver. This first episode demonstrates how not to care for yourself and how through personal choice and avoidance, evil can get the better of us. Brent and I are colleagues in the United Methodist Church. We were both ordained this past year. And I have to say, I have a lot of respect for him and his journey. He's in recovery. And so he speaks honestly about what happened in his life that led him to alcoholism. It became clear on the recovery side of life that he didn't process his emotions and feelings and stuff them down until they couldn't be contained anymore. And thus began the downward spiral. I hope that you learned something from his journey and experience and are willing to face some of your stuff to be a healthier and happier you. Now on to our interview. Hey friends, we're here with our self-care and spiritual warfare episode of season two's podcast. I am here with Brent Salzgiver, who is a colleague of mine. Welcome Brent. Hi. So introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself, who you are, what you do.
1: I am Brent Salzgiver. I'm currently the pastor at Paxton United Methodist Church in Harrisburg. Um, I grew up in Central PA, mostly in Bloomsburg, Um, and I'm nervous. This is my first podcast, so to anyone I offend or uh, curse too much, um, I'm sorry, and please send all uh, hate mail to the deacon, Karen Wise, uh, because it's her fault.
0: Awesome. Okay, so you are in recovery yes and one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you is because i know that people in recovery generally have to be much more diligent
2: yeah about
0: your self-care than the average person Mm -hmm. um and so that's why i wanted to to have you on um and so if you would tell us briefly about your spiritual journey <laughs> briefly. <laughs> briefly. Oh, okay. Well, you know, whatever or however long you want to take, really, cuz well, you're a pastor's kid right. and that has a huge impact on things and
1: Yeah, it only took me <laughs> 35 years to realize that it did have an impact on me. Um, <laughs> no, I think um I was born in Harrisburg. Uh my father's a pastor, my mother is a nurse. Um I have one older sister who's 4 years older than me. Um, We were born, I was born uh, on Allison Hill on Duke Street across from Harrisburg High School. Mm. Um, So my dad helped in uh, starting what was shared ministry, um, which was a group of different denominations uh, working together in the same church um, in Allison Hill. Um, Since then that church is closed, but for me it began my kind of spiritual journey. Um, I was surrounded by people who didn't look like me, talk like me, you know, smell like me, and I loved it. And then we moved to Wellsboro and I went, wait a minute, all of these <laughs> white people are freaking me out. Why Why can we see the stars? Um, but it really set the ground uh, kind of for who I am um, and also my ministry. Um, and that's kind of where I started. Um, I always knew that God was calling me into full time ministry. I just didn't know when. Um, but then I went to school. Um, I, you know, through my formative years, I got to go to confirmation without my father, which was awesome um, because we were living in Nashville and he was doing another job. So that that allowed me to kind of. Begin that faith journey on my own mm-hmm. um, and to to see what that meant for me and what that looked like um, and then, when we moved back and I went back under the the family microscope, um, it was in Bloomsburg, which I consider my home uh, It's where I graduated it's where it has the best fare in the world. I don't care what anyone says um, <laughs> but you know those were the years where I really not only became active in the church, but we also began to see that, you know, where faith falls in line. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, but at the same time, um, like any kid I was dealing with the normal issues that kids deal with. Um, you know, how do I live in a world where I don't like myself or how do I live in a world where I'm uncomfortable with who I am and I don't know who God has called me to be. Um, and I got kind of pulled in to the church on a larger uh, scale. And I blame completely Suella Bartow. She is fully to blame for all of it um, in that she brought me on a committee, which is Conference Council on Youth Ministries. Um, and when I, it allowed me to do a mission trip to China my sophomore year of high school. Um, it allowed me to see what the larger church looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, when I went to college, it allowed her to keep away, to keep me pulled back into the church, mm-hmm. um, because I went to college with the understanding of I was gonna do, uh, I wanted to do something in criminal justice, maybe juvenile delinquency, um, so that's where my internships and my focus was. Um, not that I was running, although I may could have been. Um, I just didn't feel like it was the time. Mm. Um, and so I went through college like most college students do um,
0: now let's be clear we are sitting about two miles from Penn State
1: right right.
0: I am a Penn State grad so mm-hmm. when you say like normal college students do I have a very unique experience of what that means, and I think many of my listeners might also have. So what do you mean by a normal college experience? You really
1: did want this to get a real conversation. (laughs) I tried to skip over that. Um,
0: Like, are you talking about, you know, the drinking and the parties and, like, all that kind of stuff? Like, where did you go to college? I went to college
1: at West Virginia Wesleyan College. Okay. I went, um, and I ran track there. Wow. Um, And I also did uh, theater there um i also uh second semester of my freshman year uh joined a fraternity uh Theta Chi which you will know at Penn State mhm um so you were busy yes um which i needed to be um you know looking back there tends to be all of these you know overarching parts to Um, addiction and also Mm -hmm. to to spirituality Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that became key was that my first grade year um, my parents talked with my teacher and said you know Brent has a little bit of trouble you know staying on task and sitting still and (laughs) you know not looking at shiny things Um, and they said have we're curious if we should have him tested for ADHD. And the teacher said, no. The teacher said, it's a myth. Um, This was in, you know, 80, you know, mid to late 80s. So it fits with what medicine and and what kind of the DSM three or four at the time was saying. Um, So I had spent my life compensating um, Mm -hmm. in those areas. So I knew that, that my grades could fall, but as long as I kept the other side of my Um, resume full, um, I would be okay. Mm. Um, So I did have the normal college experience. I didn't actually start drinking until 17 or 18 and I didn't even like it. I was a senior in high school. Um, I think I drank more in college um, but nothing that I would see as excess, knowing now what excess is. (laughs) um (laughs) yeah and i would say if anything drug use was minimal to once and done Mm
2: -hmm. um
1: only because at the time i still wanted to have a job where i could carry a gun Mm -hmm. um but
0: and that yeah that drives a lot of decisions like teachers they if you want to teach you can't be right arrested even for underage drinking. Right. So yeah.
1: Um, but one of the things that then made you know my college experience abnormal is I took an internship um, at uh, the United Methodist Youth Organization in Nashville for the summer. Um, and it was during this time uh, with one of my mentors who I grew up with, Angela Gay Kincaid, who's now a pastor in the West Virginia Conference. And, uh, I lived with her and I worked with her and, um, my last week I found out about an organization called the American Anti-Slavery Group and it fit with my passions. Um, I was that weird kid that I told my mom when it was at its height that I hated Dukes of Hazard <laughs> because of the way I felt it depicted, um, anyone who wasn't white. And she just kind of shook her head and went, okay. <laughs> um, but this this spoke to me and um, I felt God calling. I didn't know what, but I wanted, I wanted to learn more about this organization. Uh, and it was based out of Boston. So I went up and I met with them. Um, and I said, I wanna do an internship. And they said, well, we don't pay interns. And they said, but if you come up, you can come up um we'll give you a stipend for housing and um you can work with us but know that you're not going to go anywhere mm-hmm. and i went okay and my parents said uh you're gonna do what you're gonna take a semester <laughs> off of school i think they thought i was never gonna go back and they said the only way you can do it is if you don't is if you get credit from the school and you mm-hmm. stay on our insurance plan not knowing that in their minds they thought i would never pull that off mm-hmm. Um, but I actually went to the school and said, I want to do this. Um, and I got a full semester's credit and insurance and it ended up working out. Um, and I talked my way into doing two trips to Southern Sudan. Um, and this was both, this was a beneficial detriment to my faith. Hmm. Um, you know, we would fly illegally into Sudan and do work with um, people who have been taken into enslavement with the civil war that's going on in Sudan. This was around uh, 2002, um, so it's right after 9-11. So we would fly into Kenya and then, fly, and then disappear into Sudan um, quite illegally um, and we'd go and my job was to uh, hear the worst of the worst stories. Yeah. Um, and I would have a translator um, and I would then after meeting with these people, I would go back and I would meet with a professor at Harvard to make sure the translations were correct um, because there were some Mm -hmm. big groups saying that they didn't believe what we were doing because there's some financial uh, backing, like most of history and slavery. Um, So, you know, I first dealt with evil in the truest form, there, and I began to understand what evil looked like, um, and I began to struggle. Um, I think one of my favorite journal entries, which let me just say I hate writing journals. Um, we went to Germany once, and my mom made me write a journal, and I wrote a hundred pages of I hate writing journals. Um, so for me, just to even have this is pretty amazing. Um, I had in my misunderstanding of who God was. um, My journal entry is uh, God today is not the day for you to come back on this earth um, because I don't understand why you let this happen. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some other words in there some of them rhymed with duck and some other things but um, (laughs) it was very real and very honest and I Mm -hmm. began to look at where is God with all of this evil in the world. Mm -hmm. But I also started Um, a continuation of a trait that I thought was helpful. And that is, I would never deal with any of this. I would simply just push it down. And I knew that if I would keep pushing it down, I wouldn't have to deal with it. Um, And in between the trips, I even told my father, he said, are you sure you want to go back? You're going to be there for two weeks. Mm -hmm. This is not, you know, a safe decision. You need to know that. And I said I want to go back because I've already had to deal with it, and I don't want someone else to have to deal with it.
2: Hmm.
1: Looking back, that was a huge red flag.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but and I went the back.
0: Place lie because you did. Oh yeah, because
1: <laughs> I didn't deal with it at all. Yeah. Um, so I went back and had, um, I guess. some deeper encounters with people who would really you know the stories became to be the same Mm. Um, all of the women were gang raped if i saw a young man who was 12 i know that he was the result of that gang rape and i knew that in most situations Mm. when he got to be 18 he would either um, convert to what they to his own to what his owner wanted uh or he would be killed um, because of the understanding that his father would have been killed in the raid of the village. Mm. So, you know, seeing young boys um, was was very rare. Um, I did work with one woman who had been carrying uh, her infant who had died for two days. Um, and we worked at burying him um, and going through that. But through all of that and even coming back, um, I didn't deal with it. I I put it into two columns. Um, One was the column that I could talk about to raise awareness, and I could talk about with politicians because we were working on a Sudan Peace Act, Um, and the other part was the parts that I was going to hide and never tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just kept pushing down, Um, and life kept going on. Um, I one day was going from Boston to D.C. and flying back meeting with senators and the next day I was sitting in a uh, bio psych class with a bunch of other college kids and I was going, what is going on Um, and I graduated. I I changed my major to psychology um, with a focus in juvenile delinquency um, and I went out into the world. I spent a year working in a group home for delinquent boys. Um, I was their parent uh, three days a week, 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. um, which came with such joys of being punched in the face and all of those things. Um, and then I got elected to go to general conference. And they I told them in advance, I'm gonna, then you know, two weeks, I have to have these two weeks off. Mm-hmm. It came a week before and they said we can only give you three days. I said well then I quit. Hmm.
2: Um,
1: I went to general conference.
0: What year was that? 2004, 2008?
1: Four. Four. Um, I went to general conference, um, had that experience of dealing with the church at a large political level.
0: Yeah. It's unappealing. Yeah. But that's maybe the nicest way to say it. And for those of you who don't know what General Conference is, it is the United Methodists' um, governing. They get together every four years. They vote on stuff. And then the Book of Discipline changes for the next four years. And then you go on. Yeah. So that's what that is.
1: So um, I came out of that hurting <laughs> in uh, a lot of ways, um, yeah. so I said all right i'm gonna I'm gonna continue this juvenile probation thing, so um I sent out my resume to every county in Pennsylvania and got no returns. Um, they had actually started a state hiring freeze
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I then said all right i can i I don't plan on staying in Pennsylvania haha and I sent one to every precinct in the New York City Police Department and got no responses. Um and that year at annual conference, um, Ed Ziders was preaching and <laughs> it was almost like a blink and God said, Alright, now's the time. And I went, Alright, God, if you if you want this to happen, make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, a couple months later, I was crying in my room at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. going, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, and it started from there.
0: Nice. I would like to take a tally, personally, of uh-huh. how many people Ed Ziders influenced into going to seminary. I'm pretty sure there's at least seven oh, that I can think of yeah. just in like our age group, yeah. let alone from you know way back right he's he's a force
1: (laughs) yes and so is Lou Parks Um, (laughs) Lou called me when I was going to look at Duke Um, and let me be honest the only reason I went to look at Duke was to see if I could get basketball tickets and uh, I'm on the tarmac getting ready to fly and he calls me and says you can look at it but you're coming to Wesley (laughs) and that was all he said Um, and he was right yeah um, so I went to Wesley and I, I got an MDiv, but I did a focus in urban ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went and did my, we have to do a two-year internship, and I did an internship at a United Methodist Church in downtown Baltimore. Um, it is actually the place where The Wire, uh, an old HBO show,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, is not on, was not only taped, but is also based after. It's also the high, one of the highest heroin distribution areas in the United States. Um, and we were in downtown East 23rd street, Baltimore. Uh, it was a 90% African-American, uh, congregation, 10% Liberian congregation, uh, 0.1% white when I was there, uh, and 0.2% white when my girlfriend, now my wife at the time would attend, um, <laughs> and for me i was more comfortable there than in some of the other places um and i to this day i'm not sure why but i loved it um but it also gave me a passion and an understanding that i think urban ministry can be used in central pa
2: mm-hmm. and that's
1: when i realized that god was calling me to come back mm. um but in all of this you know, still going on. I still have no healthy spiritual practices. Um, still pushing down anything. I don't want to mm-hmm. feel um, all of that. And it was working. Um, you know, it worked for a while.
0: Theoretically. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> and it was also at the time in seminary that I finally got diagnosed with ADHD mm. um, and started on medication for that. And that changed my world completely. Um, I could study when I wanted to study, which was something that was not possible before. Um, It you know allowed me um, an area of focus that I never had. Mm -hmm. Um, But looking back, if you guys don't know this, clergy have a lot of ego. (laughs) um and i think ego got involved a lot with it um Mm -hmm. of i can handle this i got this yeah um and that's kind of how i went through seminary Mm. um so i came out and of course having a a urban ministry degree i was sent to a rural two-point charge in clearfield county um, pa um which was a perfect starting point, because the congregations were amazing in that sense, um, but it also didn't push me. I started to realize, looking back that I cared more about other people's faith than I did about mine mm-hmm. um and as time went on, the less intimate relationship I had with God, the further I got away, and the further. I allowed myself to uh, tell myself that um, I was outside of God's grace,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I had done maybe too much, um, but I could deal with anyone else's faith. That was fine. Mine just doesn't work, <laughs> um, and you know, so that that move went well. Um, I guess if you look at the ladder of clergy and what you want to do, um, some people say I was on the right path. Looking back, I was on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Um, I got chosen to be a part of a group of 50 clergy from all across the U.S. that met with Adam Hamilton and Mike Slaughter, two pastors who have large churches. Um, and we were picked um, based on the belief that we would someday minister a church of um, over 500 to 1,000. Um, f-
0: One of the things that is wrong with, <laughs> with our denomination, that we actually pick people.
1: Yes, the idea.
0: assumed assume that. Oh, anyway. Yes. Apart from my
1: Well, and also the idea that bigger, bigger is better. Yeah. Um, but there's also, there was some also politics behind it. Um, Adam and Michael also wanted to, I believe, I don't know this to be true. This is completely my.
0: This is not libel or slander.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, I think they wanted a way to pick their predecessors. Mm. And this was a way to do it and to train them. Um, But I came back with that mentality. Um, I knew the words to say, Mm. you know, I knew the talk. Um, I put up a good front, um, and I got moved to a larger church in Altoona. Um, And things were going great, and I was still pushing down and pushing down. Um, And then we had a traumatic death. I broke one of my first rules, and that is I don't answer the phone on Sunday mornings. Um, Mm. But this one I did, and it was a mother of um, a woman who... Uh, is on the leadership team I was close with uh, the night before. Her husband was in a car accident, um, and he was on life support. So in between the church services, I went and saw them, and I said, I'll be back after church. Um, And it started the long process of um, me being with um, Terry as she went through this. Um, And I was there and was was honored enough to help them um, talk about and pray about the decision of of taking him off life support and also organ donation. Um, And what I wasn't aware of at the time is that once you sign over the papers to be an organ donor, we normally think that, you know, the plug is pulled and the organs are taken. Well, no, there's a process. They have to get the organs back into the right shape. And then mm-hmm. they have to go through the procedure of um, getting on the phone with doctors all across the US and wow. kind of fight for the organs. Um, and that took about three days. Oh. So that's three days of sitting. Um, I wasn't there all the time, but looking back, was I there more than most would be, maybe. Um, but I also was not going to let Terry sit there alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just one of those things where I said, all right, I'm going to embrace the suck and just just be there. Um, and so I did. And, you know, we always joke around and say, you know, I like to know when I die. I now don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, his last day, we knew at two o'clock is when they mm-hmm. were going to start what they call a harvest. Um, and the countdown was hell. In every way. Um, So I left that uh, situation and did my normal push down um, and just kept going. And I'd say about two weeks later, I experienced my first real panic attack. And this was because all the stuff I'd pushed down could no longer go Mm -hmm. any further. There Um, wasn't any
0: room anymore. Right.
1: Um, And I didn't know that. So, after the second panic attack...
0: We think that it's a bottomless hole. Right. And it's not. No. Because then stuff starts coming up, and it's even uglier and worse than when we pushed it down the first time.
1: Right. Um, But I found out that if I took a shot, um, it would ease the panic attack. Mm -hmm. And that was a slippery slope, because in taking the shot, I wasn't easing the panic attack. I was... Hiding or not dealing with the emotions that I needed to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, I was covering them up. Um, And that started um, a time of self-medicating. And that self-medicating began through alcohol. Um, I'm, you know, I consider myself a straight drunk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And in that sense, I mean, I always used alcohol. Um, mm. But one of the things that kind of adds to it or makes it interesting is that I also understand the benefits of counseling. Um, and I went to um, the therapist who I was seeing for ADHD um, and said, I'm having this. And he put me on Clonopin. Uh, mm. um, but because I'm clergy or for whatever reason, he never asked if I was drinking. Which is fine because, in all honesty, I would have lied. <laughs> um, yeah. And I wasn't drinking a lot at this point, mm-hmm. but I had started down the slope. Um, you know, what we now know is that addiction is a physical disease, um, it runs in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, I see traits of addiction throughout my life. It was just this is when it got me Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, and during the day I would use the medication which would allow me not to feel Um, and then at night um, I would drink Um, and I would always drink alone because it wasn't about you know the excitement it was about not feeling what I wanted to feel Um, and it was normally You know, I could hide it pretty much, and then when my wife would go to bed and I'd stay up and watch TV, and it would be my Basset Hound and I. Um, And over a couple years, um, it moved to, okay, I don't care what I'm drinking. I care about the proof. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all that mattered because no longer was I able to safely, well, safely is a dumb word, Uh, correctly medicate myself Um, so I would be up drinking all night um, or as you know we tend to call it drinking to go to sleep Um, (laughs) and then before I knew it I'd have to get up at five o'clock because I'd have the shakes Um, or you know I wasn't eating anything Um, you know I spent a long time constantly sick um, and, you know, whether that's throwing up or whatever and I made mm. excuses for it. Um, and then it got so bad in my active addiction that um, to everyone else it became evident.
2: Mm. To
1: me, I was like, oh, I'm still hiding this. Great. Um, to other people, <laughs> they're like, yeah. Um, and kind of to show, you know, the mentality that someone has an active addiction, You know, people still have the wrong, wrong perception that it's a moral thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember one night um, we started an N.A. meeting at our church and it was pretty big. It had about 70 people. And I remember one night sitting on the top of the stairs, um, listening to the group and literally thinking to myself, "Oh, I feel so bad for these poor bastards. As I was drinking out of a flask.
0: Wow, that is ironic.
1: And it never ever, I mean,
0: it didn't even phase you at all.
1: No, it was like, I've
0: got my stuff together. Yeah,
1: Um, you know, and even as my shot glass moved up to sippy cups, Mm -hmm. you know, that became, uh, that became my shot glass. Um, I can remember thinking, you have a problem, and immediately the thought that would then cross my mind was, no, you're fine. Hmm. Um, And that's the addiction. Um, So it kept going to the point where I would start to surround myself that people with people who would approve of my drinking. Um, This doesn't mean I drank in public. Um, You know, I wasn't going to bars. I was just going to different liquor stores in different parts of the town. Hmm. Um, you know, at different times, and surrounding myself with people who thought that was okay. um, In every part of my life. And uh, then it got to a point on Christmas Eve, um, at this point, you know, my drinking was out of control. We were, I was drinking probably a bottle of um, some sort of whiskey or moonshine Mm -hmm. um, it had to be 100 proof so I was drinking a bottle of those a day um, Mm -hmm. plus the Klonopin so we then uh, Christmas Eve came on Christmas Eve I drank throughout the day a bottle of wild turkey 151 um, and one of the people that I surround myself with after the first service we had two services on Mm -hmm. christmas eve after the first service left me a uh, flask of blueberry moonshine that they had made Um, and i drank some of it and then knew i had some stuff to do before the second service so i left at my office and in the back of my head i said this is a really dumb idea which is really funny because i've done a lot dumber stuff before that (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I left and um, at this point the SPRC went to the DS Mm. um, who at the time I was close with and I put her through hell in having to bring charges against Mm. me Um, and I got a phone call and the phone call came and it was quite funny Uh, it was um, my DS saying tomorrow I need you and your wife in the bishop's office at 10 o'clock and I was like oh this isn't good (laughs) um
0: not even like you're coming here no it
1: was you're he- going
0: to the bishop's office tomorrow no matter what n-
1: and bring your wife yeah I was that's was like bad what um and i actually thought it was because our church wasn't paying shares of ministry <laughs> that's honestly what i thought well, um
0: and our bishop is very concerned about shares of ministry so you know
1: so he sat down, and, and they they asked me about a couple things, and I said yes to those things. Mm-hmm. Didn't say anything else. I didn't know what they knew,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I wasn't going to perjure myself if I didn't have to. Um, so, <laughs> so the bishop said, all right. Um, he said, here's what's going to happen. You're on suspension for three months. He said, if you want to come back um, and still have your position um, as a clergy, you need to do three things Um, one you need to go to a 30-day rehab Uh, two you need to hand over um, the keys to your gun cabinet
2: Mm.
1: okay Um, and the third one was no contact with anyone from the church that I was pastoring Mm. Um, and for two weeks I did nothing Um, I sat on the couch in a drunken, depressed stupor. Um, And finally, my wife came to me and kind of said, here, here are three places, pick one. Hmm. Um, And I'm
0: not dealing with this anymore. Right,
1: right. (laughs) Um, And even at the time, I was like, well, I I guess I have to. You know, if I want to keep my job, I'll play the game. Um, Which really, I'd been doing most of my Mm -hmm. clergy life up to that point was just playing a game Um, and uh, so I went and I went to St. Joseph's which is actually uh, in between State College and Altoona.
0: It's beautiful there. It is
1: Um, and my first night there um, when I was talking to them they said well you're gonna have to go through detox And I was like no I'm not I'm not gonna need detox this is
0: you know. That was like the worst five days of your life one of them
2: maybe.
1: <laughs> um partly, you know, there was also it was also I was leaving the day after my son's birthday. Hmm. So there was a whole lot of guilt and shame with that. Yeah. Um but I went and my wife was gracious enough to even stop the car. If I was her, I just kind of would have pushed me out. Um but I went and still, you know, I might have been one of the few people to show up to rehab sober you know, that day, you know, I don't know if sober is even the right word, not drunk, that's probably better. Um, And that night um, during uh, a 12-step meeting, everyone went around the room and at this point I still refused to accept the fact that I had a problem and I heard everyone's story and then I was the last one and I didn't have to say anything because it was my first day And to myself, I said, oh, fuck, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, And at that point, I stopped caring about everything. Um, I didn't Mm. care about work. I didn't care about um, Mason, my son. I didn't care about my wife. I, I don't mean I didn't care about them. I had to put my recovery first Mm -hmm. Um, and at that moment I recognized it that when it Mm -hmm. came to alcohol I was powerless Um, if there was a bottle on the table um, my addiction um, I would either finish it or pass out Mm
0: -hmm. there's
1: no in between Mm -hmm. Um, and you were all in right yeah at this point I was um, completely and utterly all-in And then it became, you know, my counselor at the one time said to me, you know, all you have to do is do two things to walk this road of recovery. Don't pick up a drink and change everything. (laughs) So I was like, great. That's all I have to do. Um, And this was during the beginning of, I was there over Lent. Um and i was there over uh ash wednesday i was there over you know so for me there was this pastoral part of
0: very
2: symbolic
1: yes um but also you know i failed
2: mm-hmm.
1: um you know the detox period the reason why it's so essential for alcoholics um is because Uh, With heroin, detox can be hell, Mm. but it doesn't lead to death. Overdose causes death. Um, With alcoholics, um, if you stop cold turkey, you can die. Um, You have what's called alcoholic seizures. Um, Your body can go into um, shock in different ways. Your organs can begin to shut down. Um,
0: I did not know that.
1: Yes, so... So detox was essential, Um, and
0: so you were highly monitored for those correct first several days
1: for all of it. Oh, okay. Um, I then also began to learn that that clonopin in some circles is also known as alcohol and a pill. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, when I'm lying to my doctor about it, it gave me away. You know, people people ask, "Were you abusing the clonopin?" And I said, "No, I was using it." not to feel what I wanted to feel, um, but I was abusing the alcohol. Um, that's that's what did it. The clonopin mm-hmm. allowed me to make it through the day, um, but it had gotten to the point where I didn't even want to ask people how they were doing because I feared them telling me something bad that I then thought in my head I would have to take on. Yeah. Um, and that started kind of a new relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Um, because I began to see that I wasn't beyond God's grace. Um, And not only did I begin to see that, um, for the first time I admitted it and I accepted it. um, Mm -hmm. And I recognized if I was going to live, um, I had to fight this disease every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I began to have a better understanding of scripture when it talks about demons um previously that always kind of bothered me mm-hmm. i was like and eh, the demon talks kind of weird <laughs> kind Although of freaks me out as a methodist
0: jesus talks a lot about it right so you're like okay jesus you freak me out a lot right know, and all the healings because really what else did you do right besides miracles healing and cast out demons exactly nothing Thank um you. you just weird me out right
1: Um, but at that point I accepted (laughs) it um, because I recognized what that demon looked like as I looked at what we call active addiction Mm. and I looked at some of the things I did that I thought were rational and good decisions Um, you know making sure uh, my son was alright so I could run downstairs and take Mm. three shots of whiskey Yeah, um, which was really like a highball glass and so, you know, seeing that, um, I named my demon, um, Gary, um, only because I found it, I apologize to anyone out there whose name is Gary, you are not demonic. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I picked Gary, uh, it just came to me. Um, and it also began to help me because when I would get triggers, um, it allowed me to accept the fact that I had this addiction mm. and that I was powerless over it um, and it began my dependence on God um, mm. because our understanding is um, addiction is a physical disease with a spiritual solution um, and I had to buy into
0: that yeah this is our stopping point for part one with Reverend Brent Salzgiver. As you wait with great anticipation for part two, I hope that this episode gave you some touch points to think about how you deal with stress and emotions and how you think about your overall well being. Don't be afraid to journal or process thoughts and feelings that bubbled up for you while listening. It's all part of the journey. And listening to another person's story can reveal parts of us that yearn to be healed or restored. Please join us next time for part two, which does get into the self-care and reflection part of Brent's journey. I am your host, Karen Weiss, wishing you grace and peace and abundant joy. Until next time, friends, peace.